Well, please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read part of the passage today, and then we will, we will take the other part of it as we meet it in the message this morning. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start reading in verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, nor as for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And keep reading verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll stop there. Some of you know the rest of the story, and the rest we'll find out as we go this morning. May the Lord bless us as we, as we look at His Word now and, and as He speaks to us through it. You're familiar with these words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair, and so on. Those opening lines from Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, they, they could describe what we're seeing in this passage today, the scene that's before us. What we read at the close of chapter 4, what we just read a moment ago, it, it, it makes us think, wow, I want to be a part of a church like that. This is just beautiful. And then we turn the page, or go to the next chapter, chapter 5, and start reading in verse 1, and we think, wow, I wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that. This is so ugly. Um, Jesus, remember, He said, I will build my church. Nothing will stop that process. Nothing, because nothing can stop me. I will complete what I began. And at the end of chapter 4, though, it, it looks like this church building process is coming along just beautifully. Things are happening in this growing church and people are being cared for, ministered to, and it's wonderful. All this displays of the evidence of the Spirit's work powerfully in the congregation, great grace and great power, all that's happening there. And then a few verses later we wonder, is this whole thing going to be derailed? But Acts, remember, we talked about this at the beginning and we've reiterated along the way and we'll continue to do so. It's not just the story of good events and bad events and good people and bad people. That's not what this is. It's not the story of some man-made, people-driven, sociologically explained religious movement. That's not what this is. It is, it, in other words, the church isn't being built by the apostles and other people. Its its success isn't ultimately dependent on people. 
Acts, remember, here's our big heading that we're seeing this whole study under. Acts is, is about the ongoing mission of our triune God. The ongoing mission of our triune God. It's not the apostles' mission. It's not our mission. It's God's. And it's, it's something that begins before Acts chapter 1. It's something that carries on past the chapter 28. It's ongoing. It's before and after. And we are by grace, we are swept up into the triune God's ongoing mission. That's what we're part of today. And so, but, but God is the one who's in the lead. So when we see successes, as we study Acts, as we see it in our own lives and our own congregation, when we see these quote successes, it shouldn't puff us up with pride. This is God's doing. He's, he's working. His mission is, is going forward. And when we see, you know, supposed defeats, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, we shouldn't wonder if the mission is in jeopardy. His mission will succeed. His mission is unstoppable. No threatening forces from the outside are going to be able to stop that. Remember, we've been looking at this in chapter 4 and the Sanhedrin and these, these pressures, these threats saying, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. That can't stop it. And that's going to be very clear as we continue to walk through this. Those external threats, they, in some ways, they fuel the mission and the spread of the gospel. But, but also we're going to see here and in other places, no corruption from within is going to derail it either. His mission is ongoing. The, the mission of our triune God, it goes on. And this is what we are part of today, brothers and sisters. But you just, I want you to take encouragement from that because it's so easy in our lives to get kind of, you know, just myopic and seeing what's right in front of us and the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And we think it's just these little events and these random disoriented, you know, little people and places and disappointments and sins and failures and, and successes. And that's not all it is. We're part of something that's big, something that goes way beyond Acts 1 and something that will go on until Christ returns. God's mission is, is marching on and we're swept up into that, brothers and sisters. We, we are beneficiaries of this reality that the gospel has come to us and it saved us, but we're also ambassadors of this. We're now instruments in the Lord's hand for His work to continue on. That's a, that's a broad, but I'm, I'm just kind of coming back to where we started and where we're going to continue to, to, to see as we walk through the book of Acts. So sometimes we talk about... Um, the church having a mission. We have a mission statement as a church. To glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. And that's wonderful. And, and we want to, that's not just ours that we made up. That's the mission of the, the Lord has given to us. But we say the, the church has a mission, but it's equally true to say the, the mission has a church. God's mission, His unstoppable mission. He has a church. We are we are part of what He's already doing and will continue to do. God's mission is what the church has been created for, has been swept up in. And, and again, there's great encouragement for us to see that. And so with that in mind, let's jump into this text. And so we have one passage that's in two parts. There's a chapter break in the middle of this passage that's unfortunate. As you, again, you can imagine those chapter breaks are not inspired by God. They're not they're not uh, from the Holy Spirit. Those are just our human attempts to kind of make it the Bible a little more readable so we can find our place as we're looking. But it's very clear grammatically this passage belongs together. But, it, but this one passage with these two parts, it shows this very sharp contrast, and that's going to be obvious. And the first part of passage, the part of the passage, we, we get this very encouraging picture 
of authentic generosity. So that's the first heading, an encouraging picture of authentic generosity. We see this at the end of chapter 4. So Luke gives us this second summary statement of life in the early church. We saw uh, the first one back in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, where he will do this at times. He's, there's this narrative marching forward, and he's going to pull back and just kind of give us this little summary of how things are, what's life like in the church. And that's what we have in, in these uh, in verses 32 and following there. And so we have this little cameo glimpse of the fellowship of these early believers, early Christians. And so this growing group of, of unqualified, unimpressive people with little money, little influence is being used by God to turn the world upside down, change the course of history. That's, what, that's what's happening. And so the only explanation for this is what we've seen already is the power of the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's God's doing. But we have this beautiful picture. Look at verse 32 there. They're united in purpose. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's beautiful. They're together. All these different people from all these different backgrounds. Remember, these pilgrims that have streamed there for Pentecost and many of them have now stayed from these different parts of the world. And yet there's this essential oneness. Togetherness. They're, they're united. They're, they're one with, in heart and soul. They believe the same message, the gospel. They've, and they're dwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And this profoundly changes how they relate to one another, even how they view one another. One heart and soul. And he goes on. They're, they're, they're powerful in witness. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, this has just been probably three months prior to this, three or four months. The climax of redemptive history is not that far in the rearview mirror. And so the coming of the Spirit, the birth of the church at Pentecost, that's probably just weeks before, probably eight weeks, something like that. And so the apostles, these eyewitnesses of the resurrection, set apart, sent out by Christ, they will not stop preaching the cross and the empty tomb. And people continue to respond to faith, not because these preachers are so articulate and so dynamic and just so uh, so compelling. That's not it. It's because great power, that's the word, great power from the Spirit is, is upon them as they testify to Christ and to His resurrection. And then another little part of this picture of authentic generosity is they're blessed by grace. Verse 33 goes on, and great grace was upon them all. One translation said, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. God's undeserved favor, His grace was on them. Not just some of them, not just the apostles here, but all of them. His great grace in powerful, great ways. All the good that was happening among them and through them and in them it could only be attributed to God's grace working through the Holy Spirit, powerfully through them. So you have great power. The, the little Greek word for great, it's where we get our word mega. Mega power. Mega grace. That's what he's saying. And this grace, this mega grace, it did something particular in them. It made them incredibly generous. And that's kind of the, 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 the last and prominent feature of this, of this picture of authentic generosity. They're, they're open-handed, open-handed when it comes to meeting needs. And so back in the second part of verse 32, 
No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Then jump down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, we'll talk about some of the questions that are often raised, but this, let's listen to what this is saying. <coughs> the gospel of grace, it loosened their grip on their stuff and it tightened their grip on one another. That's what this is describing. The gospel of grace, it loosened their grip on their possessions and their money and the things that you know, belong to them and it, and it tightened their grip on each other in the church. That's what always happens when grace gets a hold of someone. Our hold on our stuff loosens. Our hold on one another, it, it tightens. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Remember, though He was in the form of God, He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. And, and he, though He was rich, yet for our sakes, He became poor. That through His poverty, we might become rich in Him. I mean, the, the Gospel, it changes how we view possessions. How we view money. We no longer see things that that do belong to us, we no longer see those as being exclusively, though, for our benefit. So we're not driven by the need to hold tightly to them and, and, and just protect them at all costs and not relinquish them. As grace comes to the Jerusalem church, this early group of believers, and the Spirit fills them, this just spills over into practical concern for the well-being of their brothers and sisters. Sharing isn't a matter of compulsion anymore. It's it providing for the needs without giving thought to uh, anything being given in return, any kind of reciprocal relationship. This just becomes normalized. That's the picture we get. I know, again, there are all kinds of questions when we read this description of what Luke's saying here. They had everything in common. Is this some kind of you know early form of socialism or communism? Is this what Stalin and Marx were would later promote? Is Is this... Is this the pattern for the church today? There have been those that have attempted to make this. The our Moravians, uh, there are the Amish even today that promote this kind of coming out of that Anabaptist Mennonite tradition. Let me just, a few comments that kind of speak to some of those. And I'm going to be brief because I, I don't want us to get off the rails here. But one, we understand this. This isn't, this isn't prescriptive. This is descriptive. I think you're probably, if you've been around, you understand there are those places in the Bible where it's describing what's happening. It's not saying this is exactly what you need to do at all times. This isn't what they do later in Acts. And so it's, it's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Secondly, Luke isn't speaking against private ownership. It's not what he's talking about. He's not promoting common ownership of everything in the church. Remember, they're meeting in each other's homes, homes that belong to people. So John Mark's uh, mothers, they're meeting in her home. And, and we'll find this in chapter 12. And so homes that belong to certain people. Third, this isn't really about the principle of, quote, equality as, as it's often promoted and talked about in our own day. In other words, all that was given wasn't divided up equally among all of the people. That's not what this is saying. The apostles aren't indicating that there's something wrong with certain people having more than other people. That's not the point. The, the principle at work here isn't equality, it's need. 
It's need. The amount of giving is determined by the needs in the community. So as the needs arose, people let go and give and generously. And then fourth, I would just say the giving was completely voluntary. Possessions weren't confiscated by the church. Nobody was showing up at their houses and saying, give me, give me everything. You don't have anything anymore. We're taking it. And we're going to redistribute it as we want to. Uh, there are versions of this that have happened throughout history. The Essene communities that sprang up around the Dead Sea around this time, most famously the Qumran community. Uh, Van, I don't know where you're at. I saw you here earlier. Thank you, right there. Uh, we got to see some, where their communities were and how they lived, and, and this is where the Dead sea, Dead sea Scrolls are found, but they basically they made a requirement to join their sect. You, you had to relinquish all of your property, all of your possessions, and you gave up ownership to everything. It was all shared by the community. That's not what we have here. And so what is this? Again, it's the grace of God loosening their grip on their stuff and tightening their grip on one another. That's what this is. And there was a need for this kind of thing because there were all kinds of, of needs. The church has grown, remember, from 120 people, disciples, and gathered together after, after Christ's ascension. Now it's approximately 20,000 people in just a matter of weeks. And again, many of these believers are pilgrims who traveled from all over to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And there they, the, the Spirit came and the apostles preached and they, and, and, and thousands believed and were baptized. And so now they're part of the church. And all of these people now, though, are staying around. They're learning and they're growing. And where, they, where else are they going to go? They're going to go back home and, and just join a local church? There are no local churches. There's no place to go. So, so this, is, this is a very centralized form of Christianity at this time. It hasn't gone out and spread and other churches planted yet. And so you have all of these thousands of people needing to be taught and looked after and fed, cared for. And most of these people were very poor to begin with. They probably used almost everything they had to make this trip to Jerusalem. And, this, and, and the grace produce generosity that grows among them, even in this context, this sense of responsibility and concern and care they have for one another, it has such an impact that verse 34 again says, there was not a needy person among them. The gospel transformed them. They like just loosen their grip on their stuff. They tighten their grip on one another and to the extent there's nobody, nobody that's needy. So I mean they were wealthy, it just means that their needs were being met. They were being fed, they were being given shelter, they were being cared for. What a beautiful picture. What a powerful testimony of uh, what a what an incredible display of the gospel at work in their hearts and lives in this congregation. And so they've been forgiven of their sins, they've been brought into this new relationship with Jesus Christ, they're now brothers and sisters with these people from all these different places that are there together. And as the Spirit works in them, they loosen their grip on their stuff, and they they and they give generously so that everybody's needs are met. What a picture. What what think of all that we can learn from that. I mean, brothers and sisters, we, we, can, we could certainly stand to hold looser to our stuff and hold tighter to one another. And I know you hear that, and you know, oh, here he goes talking about money, and you start holding on to your wallet and all of that and get nervous. Listen, I would say rather than focusing on loosening your grip on stuff, focus on tightening your grip on one another. Start there. 
As, as you move closer to people, as you get in proximity to people and you share life together and you, you know needs and you really understand, okay, well, man, I see them on church on Sunday. I had no idea they were going through that. And you, you learn one another, you get close to one another and you hold tight to one another. As you know those needs, it's not going to be a big deal. You're going to be, you're going to be holding looser and you say, how can we help? Let's help. And, and, and you'll move towards one another. Caring for the needy among us in our church, in our community. I mean, there is poverty in our community. It looks very different from other parts of the world, and I realize that. But, but looking to meet needs, setting aside money so you can respond quickly. This is, this is, we have a version of selling a piece of property. Not every piece of property, that's not what they're doing here, but they're selling some of what they had so that they can distribute it, and it can be given to meet needs. Maybe... And we need to have whatever version of that is for us, that we have this money that's set aside so when needs come up, we can meet them quickly. Concern for brothers and sisters and just image bearers of God around the world as we see what's happening in, in the Ukraine and in, in Europe with all this just refugee crisis that's going on. These, we have opportunities here to, to loosen our grip on stuff, to tighten our grip on people. We, we have on our uh, church app, there is under the news section and I think service opportunities, there are a couple links that you can go there. Some vehicles that we want to, want to set aside as a church to be able to give and to support and to help uh, right now because the needs are immediate, brothers and sisters. If you read the Heaton's newsletter, you know some of those ways. Um, there, there are some opportunities through Crossworld to get money right into those areas to help uh, in, in these ways. And so please utilize those today. The, the, again, the needs are mounting just exponentially daily. All right, so chapter four, it ends with this. So we, we're talking kind of, we get this little cameo of the church and what's going on. And then we get very specific. And there's this particular example of Barnabas, and we can't linger here, but he he models this grace-fueled, selfless spirit. So verses 36 to 37, he sells a piece of land that he owns, Again, one of several, it seems. And, and he offers the money to the apostles so they can distribute it as people have needs. And so we're calling him Barnabas at this time. Seems to indicate he was probably known as Joseph. He later became known as Barnabas. And so the time Luke's writing this, that's how people know him. Son of encouragement. But he's a, he's a Levite. He was, he, he was of that clan that didn't have the land inheritance when they came into the land. They weren't given that. That doesn't mean they weren't able to own property, but they had these cities that they could go and they could live and, and, and acquire property there. But as the Jews were dispersed, Joseph ends up in Cyprus. And so he's there on this island. That Gentile connection is going to be very important later. That's why Luke's giving us these details now. So we'll come back to that later. But he's, he's, a, he's a really cool character in the book of Acts, if I could put it that way. And we're going to see him multiple times and so this is the first of those he's a lead giver here and he's going to be the first one that's going to embrace Paul or Saul after his conversion so when everybody else is scared to death of this guy who's terrorized the church and killed Christians and 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 he's going to be the one the first guy to stick up for Paul Acts chapter 9 he'll lead the Antioch church to become this growing multi-ethnic uh, diverse congregation and again that Connection to Cyprus is going to be important that he's going to pastor those new Gentile converts in a very loving way. He's, he's going to be the one that uh, is put in charge of taking the relief money to Jerusalem 
when famine hits. He's, he's going to be a teammate for Paul on his first missionary journey. Another guy, John Mark, is going to join that team as well. He's going to abandon Paul, then he's going to want to spot back on the team, and Paul's going to say, hey, fool me once. And, and, but Barnabas is going to be the one that says, hey, I'll take him. He's with me. I'll see if he's restored or not. I mean, this is him. He, if I could summarize Barnabas again, we're kind of seeing where we're going to, what we're going to see in, in throughout the lesson. He lays money down and he picks people up. He's fine. Loose grip on stuff, tight grip on people. And, and so he's a picture of a gospel transformed person and his name fits. Son of encouragement. He's known for kindness and support of other people in word and in deed. He's a preacher. He's an encourager, but he shows up. And, and without question, his, this example of his generosity was a great encouragement to the entire church. That's why Luke's recorded this for us. So what a beautiful picture of this authentic generosity in the early church. Raise your hand if you want to be a part of a church like that. All right, you don't have to be embarrassed. It's okay. I, I want to be part of that. I mean, take me there. I love to see that. I love to, love to be part of a congregation like that. What a, what a wonderful blessing it must be to, to, to bend, to be part of that church and to see grace at work in these ways. Well, the wind suddenly shifts, though, in what we read. So this beautiful picture of selfless, selfless, authentic generosity we see in chapter four. It's seen supremely in the example of Barnabas at the end there. It gives way to this picture of selfishness, pride, duplicity in this account of Ananias and Sapphira. So we have this picture, beautiful picture of, of authentic generosity, and second, this troubling picture of what I would call pretentious hypocrisy. Troubling picture of pretentious hypocrisy. Um, we have three daughters, and most of you are aware of that, which means there's three sisters that grew up together in our home. I'm making them real nervous right now. But believe me, we had a lot of shows in our living room as our girls grew up. Uh, Carson reluctantly got roped into many of those shows. Uh, and, and I have videos on my phone that I'd be, I could show you of some of these shows. No, I won't do that. Don't worry, Katie and Kara. Uh, unless you pay me the right price. No. <laughs> but... They, they, I, I'm sure many of you have watched, if you have kids and grandkids, many of those shows. Some of you probably remember performing in those. If you're a young child, even now, you probably are doing those now. And they're wonderful, and they make great footage and to and just enjoy for years to come. But you, you can imagine the scenes. The older, bossy sister, not that we had this in our house, but telling everybody what their part was. And, and of course, she's the star of the show. She's taking center stage. And then the youngest sibling who always messes things up, you know, is always relegated. You're, hey, here, I got a job for you. You're the, you're in the audience. <laughs> Why do I always have to be the audience? Uh, you know, because we're playing pretend and, you know, I'm the star and, and you're my fan, you're my biggest fan and, you know, ask for my autograph and that kind of thing. I mean, this is how, this is how these things often go. And so children love pretending in those ways. I think we all can appreciate that. They're not the only ones who play pretend games though. We have our adult versions of this, don't we? How, how, have you ever faked or exaggerated laughter to give the impression of being a fun-loving person? Have you ever asked a, you know, deep question to appear intellectual? This always backfires on me. I've tried it, but it never works for me. 
Have you ever been, have you ever given a nice gift or given money to appear generous? Maybe more generous than you actually are. Have you ever talked about another person's sin? Maybe some celebrity Christian or something like that, or maybe in a context of a church and maybe in the form of a prayer request. Have you ever talked about that to appear holy? We're pretenders. We, we have our versions. We've probably done some of it this morning. We have our games of pretend, and, and the word that describes us when we play those games is hypocrites. Hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes out of ancient Greek theater. It's, it's the word for an actor, someone who puts on a, some elaborate mask to play his or her role, to, to pretend to be someone that they're not. That's, that's their origin. So what does God think of our play acting? Does our hypocrisy matter to him? Yes, it does. He takes it very seriously, something that will be abundantly clear in this passage. Playing pretend with God can be lethal. And so, verse 1, let's pick up the story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, Ananias, his name means the Lord is merciful in Hebrew. That's going to become important. Sapphira means beautiful in Aramaic. But this couple, they sold a piece of property. They did what Barnabas and others were doing. So far, so good in terms of just their actions here. We'll, we'll find that their motives are very different. And, and Verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, was it wrong for them to do this? Selling off one of their properties, giving only part of the monies to the church? Is that wrong? At face value, no. Nothing wrong with that. They were under no obligation to sell a piece of land. They were under no obligation to devote all of the proceeds from the sale of that land to the church, to the apostles, so they could distribute. Peter will make this very clear in verse 4. They had no obligation to do this. Again, their actions aren't really the problem, but there was a problem. Big problem. Peter leaves no doubt whether there's a problem or not. Verse 3 says, he asks, he inserts himself, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart why has satan filled your heart okay there is a problem i mean it's time to take that in reverse one this problem is a heart problem that's the that's the level it's not just behavior it gets down into the decision making core of who of who he is behind and behind this sinful heart problem is satan himself this is the first we could say post cross appearance of satan Before the cross, his strategy had been all along to kill Jesus, to do away with the Messiah, the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. And when he couldn't do that, now his his mission is to destroy Jesus' body, the church, from within, to attack the unity of the church and the holiness of the church. And so rather than being filled with the Spirit, authentic generosity that overflows from that, we find Ananias is filled volitionally by Satan. This deceiver and, and all of the fruit that comes with that. And so Peter, with prophetic insight, he questions Ananias, say, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to what? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you didn't have to sell it. Nothing wrong with owning property. 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have given as little or as much as you wanted from the sale of that property. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What, what, what made you think of doing such a thing? Then he concludes, you have not lied to man, but to God. What's the word? Lied. Lied. Lied to the Holy Spirit. Lied to God. What was this deed that he contrived in his heart? The problem, again, it wasn't that he didn't give it all. The problem was that he pretended to give everything when he only gave a part. He play acted. He pretended. He, he made himself out to be something he wasn't. He, he made himself out to be far more generous and far more self, self-sacrificing than he actually was. And so he presented this gift as if it was the full amount. He put on the mask, this elaborate mask of this selfless giver. He showed a false front to the church and not just to the church, to the Lord. He lied to the Holy Spirit who's God So no doubt he and and Sapphira, they were envious of other people and the approval that others were getting and and that they gave to Barnabas and gave to others in the church who were doing similar kinds of things. And so we want them. We want some of that applause. We want some of those attaboys. We want to be known. We want other people to say, wow, what a huge sacrifice you're making for others in need. What selfless, generous acts you're doing here. Wow, this is this is the lie. This deception, this pretentious hypocrisy. God's judgment comes swift after Peter's confrontation. So when when Ananias heard these words, verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last. I would say that's swift. Death strikes him immediately. This isn't Peter taking him out. This is God's, God's doing. And those who saw it trembled. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias is gone. What in the world were we to make of this? Was Ananias like not actually a believer? Was he a Christian? Was this fatherly discipline sent unto death? We aren't explicitly told. But he certainly could have been, and I think he likely was, a a true Christian who was guilty of duplicity. I mean, believers are certainly guilty of hypocrisy, aren't they? Uh, Please say yes. (laughs) That's more dangerous, frightening. We can't acknowledge that. I mean, Peter himself is going to be busted for this in Galatians 2. So why did God strike Ananias dead? Why didn't he strike Peter dead? Why, why, why was what he did so much more wrong than the ways that others in the church were acting in hypocrisy? No doubt, and we'll see throughout Acts. Why, why ways that we act in hypocrisy? We do this way worse. Why? why? Is this the kind of, is this kind of instantaneous judgment from God? Is that the norm? To, to be expected, does everyone who lies like this get struck dead? Well, clearly not, or we'd be in an empty room. So what are we to do with this? Was God just being random and capricious? Was he, was he having a bad day? It was like he are, we, like we are with our children, just kind of touchy and irritable, and, and our kids never know 
you know, how we're going to react. Are we going to discipline for this this time? And what level of intensity are we going to come at them for this time when they wake us up from our nap and those kinds of things? Is that what we have, a grumpy, kind of irritable dad that's just flying off the handle in this moment? Not at all. So what do we make from this? If I could give some kind of context, redemptive historical context here, I think this helps. So remember the hailing, the hailing, the healing of the lame man a few weeks ago in, in Acts chapter 3. And so these, the, 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 these miracles that we see and we'll continue to see in Acts, they function as signs. They're not just random displays of, of, of uh, power that, that really fulfill no bigger purpose. No, no. In, in them, the Spirit is working powerfully to, to point to something that's true about God's kingdom in these very graphic and physical ways. And so the healing, it's God has power to restore His people, to reverse the curse. That's God has that, and this is pointing to who, who God is. It's something that's true about God and, and something that's certainly true about Christ and the fulfillment that comes in Him. And so something similar is happening here with this sign, but it's a different kind of sign. It's a punitive sign, but it's, it's still a sign. And so we're at a stage in redemptive history. We've talked about this. It's this hinge in redemptive history. What life's like now after, after Christ incarnate being among us. Now he's ascended. What's life? And so with this unique transition threshold in redemptive history and, 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 and at this point, everything, everything is magnified. If you look at textbooks like, you know, biology textbooks or something like that, you get into, you know, studying cellular structure and you have these exploded views, these magnified views, you know, this, this, you know, cell and then there's this box that, you know, it's this little arrow pointing to this tiny little part and it's expanded out. That's kind of what we have in Acts. It's this expanded view of, of God and his kingdom. And so, uh, that's why there are so many spectacular signs, things that are happening in Acts. The next verse in this chapter, verses 12 and following, we're going to see this next week. It just gives us another one of these summaries of life in the early church. And Peter's just walking by and lame people are healed because the shadow passes over them. Crazy. Do you ever see that happening today? No, not at all. And we don't see this happening later in Acts. It's, it's this very unique thing that's happening in this unique time. It's this exploded, magnified view of things. And so in the same way, God doesn't strike everyone dead who lies to the Holy Spirit today. He didn't, he didn't even do it again in the book of Acts. No doubt they did it, but he didn't wipe everybody out. But this dramatic, very powerful judgment is this sign that God gives to us is a picture of how He sees our sin. It's a glimpse of God's judgment on sin. It's a, it's a glimpse of God's power over Satan who filled His heart. It shows how seriously God rega- re- regards anything that mars His holiness and the unity of His people. There's grace, brothers and sisters, even in this. You understand this. I, again, I cannot say with absolute certainty, but there's nothing that would indicate that he wasn't actually a believer. And so in a sense, this is grace. This is a grace for the church not to let this go on and on and on. And it would have, and it would have spread. This was grace for the world and the witness of the gospel that would be marred by this taking root and spreading. 
It was grace for the Lord to nip this in the bud. It was grace for Ananias. Listen, it was even as a believer, even if he's a believer, he's kept from what would be this duplicitous life. This pattern, and I know it may be hard for you to see that. He's now in the presence of God. I mean, we're all going to die, brothers and sisters. I, this is a, probably a terrible analogy. I shouldn't even say this because this is something I've thought and I haven't written out. And so I'm really taking a risk here, and I'm letting you in the mind of the preacher here. And I was thinking about this this morning, just driving here. I was thinking of like playing sports, and your coach tells you before the season starts, hey, you guys got to get conditioned, and we got to run, and you got to do these things, and you got to stretch, and you, you got to get, or you're going you're gonna to get hurt, and you, we need you at top performance when we start this season. And, and, and one of the star players that's supposed to be, you know, the, the big shot and it's got all the talent in the world, he steps on the floor and it's clear he's not conditioned and he's flailing all over the place. And the coach says, you're out. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt the team. You're going to hurt somebody else. You're out, you're out of control out there. And, and, and we say, but that's grace. Now I realize it's taking death out, but if he's a believer, there's not, this isn't wrath. This isn't wrath. This is fatherly discipline. All right, I'm I'm moving on. I just I think of uh, the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. C.S. Uh, yeah, C.S. Lewis and the, the the God. He's not safe, but he's good. He's good. That's the image that comes to mind. So we have this cycle with Ananias, and then it repeats the same with his wife. They conspired together. Remember the text says, and and he's the one though that went alone with the money to the apostles. And so she's probably thinking, what is taking so long? No, no wife has ever asked the question of her husband, I'm sure. Uh, so after waiting a while, she goes to where she knows the apostles are gathered, verse 7, quickly. And then after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, such and such price. It's an opportunity for her to come clean. In other words, was the money given by Ananias the full amount of the sale as he made it out to be? And so faking honesty, she answers, yes, that was the price for so much. And after she tells this lie, the cycle continues. Peter confronts her, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And with prophetic power, he tells her, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And the Lord judges her as he has, as he did her husband. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in and they found her, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I mean, the severity of the Lord's judgment here, it does take your breath away, doesn't it? To make you tremble a little. It did for those who were there, those who heard, and great fear. This is the same little modifier here, adjective. Remember, great mega power, mega grace. Now, mega fear, great mega fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the first time the word church is used in Acts. This word, most common word, ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly of the called out ones. This is the first time it's used. We're at a point in history again when everything is magnified everything's expanded remember that analogy and so god nips this in the bud for the early church he does it for them and he does it for us this is forever recorded this expanded magnified view their their proud premeditated hypocrisy that they would not confess even when caught is busted and it's 
It's snuffed out. The church must never forget the seriousness of hypocrisy. Duplicity. So what do we learn from this passage? In the few minutes we have left, let me just, a few, few kind of lessons and, 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 and truths and realities that I think emerge from this. So I'm going to just kind of rattle these off pretty quickly. One, it was unquestionably we see the seriousness of sin. I hope that you can see that. I know sin is made light of in our day and age. We joke about it. We dismiss it. We rationalize it. We minimize it. Even in the church this happens. But sin is always a deadly, serious matter to God. Just because we, we live in the age of grace, but grace doesn't make sin, quote, no big deal. No, grace is magnified and it's cherished and it's reveled in because sin is such a big deal. And so this, this account is difficult though, isn't it? I mean, lying over the price of the sale of a piece of land and that was already theirs to begin with. How is, how, how great a sin is that really? You think some of the things you've done in private this week, are far more treacherous than this. If we're honest, we, we may find God's actions here a bit confusing at best, if not offensive. Uh, let me just, one writer said, if we are offended by the swift judgment of God described here, it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the seriousness of our sin in relation to His holiness. And so in other words, we shouldn't be asking, why did they die for this? We should be we should be wondering, why do we remain alive? Is it because we're not as bad? Is it because sin isn't really that serious? Our sin anyway, our hypocrisy isn't isn't that treacherous. It's much more milder form than theirs. God doesn't care about ours as much as he did back then. No, not it at all. Sproul said in this book, The Holiness of God, God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, He's so slow to anger that when His anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to Him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that He's powerless to punish us. So the seriousness of sin. Second, the malevolence of Satan. The malevolence of Satan. Satan can't stand it when we, when we love each other in the church. When we're together, when we're one heart, that beautiful picture that we saw at the end of chapter 4, united in purpose and great power through the testimony of his people and great grace upon us all and this generosity towards others that there are no unmet needs. He can't stand it. And so when we're falling out with each other, when we're bickering about this, that, and the other thing, he loves it. He's celebrating. But he can't stand it when we're together and loving one another and giving to one another. And so this was a dangerous time for the devil when the church again grew from 120 to 20,000 in a matter of weeks. This small, fledgling, young church, it, 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 it became the target of his ferocious hatred. And he still wars against the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, and local expressions of that like this church right here. There are all kinds of warnings. The New Testament's replete with warnings about this very thing. And so remember, I just say, when we have a conflict, and we do in the church, we fall out with one another, when we have conflicts, and by God's grace, we want to move towards reconciliation, but part of that is remembering that we have a common enemy, and he's not you, and he's not me, and the other person, it is the devil. 
He is working to separate us. He's working to destroy his, us and, his, and Christ's work in the church and to hinder the building of His church. We have a common enemy. And so one of the first things that we do in reconciling or in working toward making peace is remember that. Say that together. Third, the, the possibility or we could say the danger of duplicity. That this is a real present threat for us. Wanting a name for ourselves, we can be pretenders in the church. Be total fakes, frauds. We want people to say to or at least about us what wonderful Christians they are. What a wonderful marriage they have. What incredible parents they are of these precious, perfect little angels. What great servants they are in the church. What students of the Bible they are. How knowledgeable they are. All all of our lust for reputation leads us to put on airs, to be pretenders. And here's the scary reality. It's nearly impossible to distinguish a Barnabas from an Ananias on the outside. Peter had to have prophetic abilities, powers given by the Lord to see this. On the outside, they're both active in the church, and generous and, and religious, but deep in the heart of Ananias was this love of money and a love for people's praise that drove him to hypocrisy. And what lays, brothers and sisters, have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Are you, even today, pretending to be more spiritual than you are? Is there a fear of, is your fear of man, your obsession for people's approval greater than your fear of God? And, and, your, and your rest and your identity of who you are in Christ already. Fourth, the holiness of God. God is holy, holy, holy. This. He is set apart. He is above, different from creation, from us. He cannot look upon sin. His eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on this passage, he says, if we are shocked by what God does here, it is because we have failed to appreciate the holy character of God. God isn't just a big, fluffy guy in the sky, Santa Claus-like figure. He is holy. And remember, the, the story, it's not located in the Old Testament like where we think it should be or where we kind of want it to be. Because when it's there, it's, if it's recorded somewhere between Joshua and Judges, we, 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 could, we have our ways of sort of dismissing it. Oh, it was back then, a different, different age, different time, and redemptive historical perspective. You know, we've passed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Things are different now. And so we could, we could use some theological uh, maneuvering to push this back into the recesses of our minds and our thoughts and history. But this is right smack dab in the middle of the New Testament. This is right here in the very center of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is right at the outset of the church's birth and growth. This is on this side of the cross in the empty tomb. God's not different in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament church. Ananias and Sapphira died, my friends, because God, who is holy, 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 struck them dead. We cannot hide from Him. We dare not try. Now again, this is a unique time in the sense that it's an explosive view, but God hasn't changed. His character is the same. And that leads me fifth to this reality, the fear of God. Now this could be a whole sermon series. I know there's been a class on four weeks or so I've been talking about the fear of God downstairs. Does this story make you tremble a little? It should. It should make us 
tremble? Is it right to fear God? After all, we're children of God. We're forgiven sinners. We, we, we have peace with God. We know and we can recite Romans 8, 28 and following there. And nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is, is God now, is the, is the gospel made God some kind of cosmic teddy bear again in the sky where he just exudes these nice, warm, serene feelings of peace? God is infinite in love, brothers and sisters. Infinite in love. He is, if you are in Christ, He is 100% for you. He holds zero admixture of wrath in His heart for you if you are in Christ. I'm not saying like God is, you know, 99.9999% to be trusted and then 0.000001% to be feared as if that's if those are competitors or something like that that's not it he is he is there is no mixture of wrath in his disposition to you not because you're so wonderful but because christ who is your righteousness has paid your the price of your atonement in full there is no wrath left for you because of what christ has absorbed in his own body on the cross he disciplines his children yes but it is only out of love and it is only because our sin, it just, it does destroy. It destroys people. It destroys. It hurts lives. It causes all kinds of damage. And so as a loving father, yes, he keeps us and he, and he, and he will discipline us. But listen, you can only know the depths of that love. And you can, as you know, the magnificence of his glory and his might and the awesomeness of his holiness. Proper fear of God is a proper part of worship. Life as a Christian. Now again, we have all kinds of distorted ideas of what the fear of God is. But listen, if you're outside of Christ, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you should fear God and you should fear His wrath. And your thought should be, i got to get out from under this. i, I got to flee from the wrath of God and take refuge in Christ right now, this morning, before I leave this place. And I would just beg you to bow your head right now and confess that you're... You're a sinner before God and you have no hope apart from Christ. Cling to Jesus by faith now. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey or believe the Son does not have life. The wrath of God remains on him. But if you are in Christ, you're shielded from God's wrath. It was all absorbed for you on the cross. Nevertheless, God's holy character has not changed. So it's right to fear him. And so John Piper, I think, if I could just illustrate it this way, and then we're done. This is from his book, The Pleasures of God. He, he, he helps us in this way. He says, suppose you were exploring an unknown Greenland glacier in the dead of winter. Not many of us have probably been to Greenland and seen glaciers, but just imagine. Just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks out. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure, that trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And so it is with God. The fear of God is, is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch 
right in the middle of it. Hope turns, to, turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it, makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of His people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. Oh, that's beautiful. Fear is a proper and beautiful response to who, to, 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 to who God is by those who've experienced His grace. And this is what we see. We get another one of those little summaries in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, several weeks from now. But this is, listen to this short summary. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Peace in the midst of persecution and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. Walking day by day in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. We are, we are known God. We are known by God, brothers and sisters, completely. And yet we are loved by Him. That's, a mute, beautiful, that's the gospel. You are more wicked in God's, in God's sight than you've ever realized on your own. But you are more loved and accepted than you've ever dreamed because of Christ. And those realities are not competitors. The beautiful realities of the gospel, how we can walk in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So Acts 5, verse 12, the next verse we'll see there next week. The mission of our triune God, it goes on. It goes on. There will be more ups and downs ahead in Acts. There will be more, more uh, hard and happy days. And even today, it's still moving forward. Still moving forward. Not, no one, nothing can derail God's ongoing mission. That shouldn't make us passive. Shouldn't send us to the back seat to just kind of take in the view. It should compel us to align ourselves with what God is doing in the world right now. And so to whatever extent we are making disciples of Christ right here and around the world, we are involved in the ongoing mission of our triune God. What an awesome thing. What a blessing. What a privilege. What a way to live. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that... Uh, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to apprehend you and your character rightly, to not shy away from the from honest assessment of our sinfulness before you, that those two things together would just cause us to revel more and more in the grace of God that is ours in Christ. And for those that may be here that don't know that, I pray that there would be just a thirst that's created by your spirit in their life today, in their hearts today. You say, I want that. I want that. And they would find it today. Lord, help us to be a congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, resisting the enemy, loosening our grip on stuff, filled with your spirit, tightening our grip on one another, who walk together in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name.